You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. She spoke, nor did the sire of gods and men, unheeding here, but poured down on the earth raindrops of blood, so honoring his dear son, him who uh, Patroclus had foredoomed to slay in Troy's rich soil far from his native land. You mean Patroclus? Yep, I totally said it wrong. I had it written down phonetically, and I totally said it wrong. Thank you, Rachel. I appreciate it. I that. never get to do that. Woohoo! Awesome. Now, Rachel, then, I'm going to ask you, what is that from? Oh, that's from uh, the Iliad. Yeah, it must be the Iliad. So, so correct. You are amazing. I'm, I'm looking um, at my copy of the Iliad right now. Excellent. It was, so, he was friends with um, Achilles. It was like best friend. Yeah. Yes. Patrick. Patrick. Close. Why did I say it wrong? <laughs> yes. So, yes. Um, True. The passage, that passage is from the Iliad. And it's just one of the many times in ancient literature there are references to blood falling from the sky. Right. Didn't that happen in the Bible too? That's yeah. what I'm talking about this week. Yeah. yeah. Blood so, from the now, sky. Okay. Um, it is I'm easy intrigued. to dismiss like one or two references uh, of this sort of thing as poetic license, or, um, you know, after all, the other passage in the Iliad reads, um, Zeus roused an evil blare of war and sent down from high heaven his raindrops stained with blood. Is the other, the other reference in the Iliad. Hmm. So, it, I find it pretty easy to dismiss the idea that Zeus actually exists. Right. Uh, so, blood, his blood pouring from the skies uh, also just seems like a bit of colorful mythology. Mm -hmm. uh, but here's the thing, though. Stories of blood rain are not limited to ancient Greece. No. Uh, just focusing on, if we're going to just focus on Europe, and there are stories in other places in Europe, but this is where I have some statistics from. Uh, just focus on Europe. There were 30 cases of blood rain recorded in the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries when you go through all the literature and whatnot. Huh. If we average that out, that's one incidence every 10 years. So that's that That's seems pretty frequent, right? Yeah. Now, in the 16th and 17th centuries, there were bizarrely 190 recorded incidences of blood rain uh, in historical documents. What? That's a lot. For those that's who yeah. at home. Yeah. Um, that's almost once per year. Uh, <laughs> What's going there on? Were also, right. There were also, uh, they were wondering that as well, Rachel. Uh, there are also 43 cases in the 18th century. And now we tend to think that people in the past were maybe not as scientifically minded as us. So let's get more modern. Uh, there were 146 documented cases of blood rain in the 19th century. What? In Europe, okay. which is getting distinctly closer to modern times, if you, if you have noticed. Yes. Uh, so Isaac Newton was in the 19th century. <sighs> Right. Now, we yes. do see quite a drop of Wait, reports of blood rain. what did you say, rain. Rachel? I think I, Isaac Newton 
Was he in the 19th no, century? No, no, no. Isaac Newton oh. was like the 17th century. 17th. Oh, never mind then. But, it, Rachel, it makes you feel any better. There was a lot of blood rain back then, too. Yes. Okay. So, um, but but it's, I'm glad you brought that up because it shows that, you know, there, there were people who we associate with um, scientific thinking. Yeah. Who were around when there was lots of reports of these things happening. And we, we do see quite a drop, though, in reports of blood rain once we reach the 20th and 21st centuries. Uh, but that probably has more to do with science than anything else. Because whereas in the past, a red-colored rain may have been seen as an omen of great evil, modern people have viewed colored rain as a scientific curiosity or a phenomenon to be yeah, studied. I mean... Or a sign of terrible pollution. Perhaps. So, All uh, of these To things. give credit where credit is due, though, many science-minded thinkers of the ancient world were also looking for more earthly explanations uh, than, you know... The uh, gods have The gods raining blood down upon they us. They hate us. So there were, of course, theories that it literally um, was blood. However, uh, one, one of the theories that was a scientific-based sort of hypothesis was that it actually was real blood, but it was blood from battlefields. What? That had basically, there was some of these, you know, horrific battles oh, yeah. that were going on with thousands of people being killed. And, you know, there's stories of rivers flowing red with blood. And there's the idea that maybe yeah. all this blood being shed was somehow evaporating into the sky and then raining back down as rain. Okay. Wouldn't um, the molecules you know, or the iron and everything in the blood? Yeah, be it's totally wrong. It's, yeah. it's totally wrong. We know that now, but like you can yeah. imagine it being a plausible scientific explanation if you right. didn't People know were looking stuff. for an explanation that would actually connect two things that were going on that wasn't mythology. Right. right. So, um, so, you know, it was, it was, a, good, it was a good try. Um, so I, it, it was wrong, but it was at least an example of trying to find like a reasonable explanation that didn't involve vengeful, omnipotent beings wasting their time and resources, scaring lowly humans with showers of blood. So I appreciate that. Uh, that is rather there have nice. Been two, yeah. There have been two interesting modern proposals for uh, the source of blood rain, and my hunch is that they are both correct depending on the situation. Okay, okay. can uh, I guess so, what one of them would be? Sure. I'm going to guess there's a fungus involved. Ooh, interesting Ooh. idea. All right, well, I would go with, like, have... algae or bacteria. Algae Ooh, is also got... a good guess. Y'all just have to listen and find out. Okay. So... Uh, it should be noted that even some of the more careful, like, ancient observers who were more curious and superstitious were quick to note that the rain was not, like, a deep blood red, but rather pink. So right. it was more like blood mixed with the rain than droplets of pure blood. Mm -hmm. so I just want to clarify that when we're talking about this type of rain. And that was something that was historically observed. So it's not like, whoa, well, it used to be that we had actual thick red blood dripping from the sky and now it's just sort of this pinkish rain and they're not like they're different phenomena it's like no even in the ancient times the people who were doing careful recording of this were like saying that it was sort of pinkish rain like blood was mixed in with the rain not a rain made of blood so i wanted to get still that horrifying to observe back then or now exactly well this is something we have seen in modern times and while I haven't seen red rain in person, I have seen red snow. In fact, I recorded red or pinkish snow one morning on video. I posted it to my YouTube channel uh, called Secret Nature. 
uh, which was back on April 11th in 2019. And on that morning here in Minnesota, many of us woke up to discover red snow covering the ground. Why and it, it wasn't really dark. It wasn't, it wasn't really dark red. It was more okay. of a pink color. And um, maybe back in the old days, we might have called it blood snow and had a good old freak out about it. Mm -hmm. um, but in this instance of let's call it blood precipitation, um, it was, it turns out, pretty easy to trace where it came from. All that week, there had been enormous, like, record-setting dust storms in Texas. Oh. And the high, the high winds had kicked up huge volumes of red dust, and it was carried all the way north to Minnesota, where it met cold Arctic air, and the red dust provided ideal nucleation sites for snow formation, mm -hmm. and we were blanketed in a reddish-pink snow. And interestingly, I think it was really lucky that we saw it because I, I, I remember and I, I went back and watched this video I shot to see when you scraped away the snow, the lower levels were all pure white. It was just the very top layer mm. that was this reddish, almost like the snow finished falling and then the dust all settled out of the sky and we had this pink layer on top of the snow. It was huh. really, really bizarre. That is so weird. So. So some scientists do believe that cases of blood rain are um, equally as simple. Uh, one of the first people to point out this solution was uh, Giuseppe Maria Giovanni, I believe is how you say his name, uh, who observed a blood rain in the year 1803 in Italy. And he also observed that the rain was preceded by several days of very strong winds blowing dust north out of Africa. And one thing I like with this theory is that the red color in soil dust is often iron oxide or essentially rust. Right. Mm -hmm. And it iron it's also the iron content or hemoglobin in our blood that makes it red. So there's actually this really cool like real world connection between blood and red rain if it is from essentially like a rusty dust is yeah. that you know they both there's a connection to why they're both red, which I think is pretty cool. Oh yeah. That's really but cool. We have that dust explanation. But there is an even weirder one, a maybe stranger one, if you per perhaps prefer. Um, blood rain fell in the town of Kerala, India, in 2001, and then it happened again in 2012. Oh, and man. scientists studying the pinkish rainwater they collected after the 2012 event were able to isolate exactly what was causing the pink color. And it wasn't dust, it was something weirder. And like all good scientific discoveries, it raised more questions than it answered. And you're on the right track earlier, you guys. Um, the color was caused by enormous amounts of the spores of a specific green microalgae. Oh. Which one of you said algae? I did. Rachel did. Rachel. Congratulations, Rachel. Amazing. Um, that's so cool. Now, that's, that's weird enough, right? Yeah, but it that's gets absolutely even strange. It gets stranger. Okay? Oh, of course it does. Why would it not? Now, sci scientists knew that this particular algae grew in Austria, for example, but it had never been seen before in India. So they're like, okay, well, here's a cool opportunity. Let's do some DNA sequencing and compare oh, yeah. um, the, the, the ones that we know, the population we know in Austria and this, this, this new stuff that we're seeing in India. And we can maybe kind of figure out... Um, how closely related they are, like maybe even you could do some really cool stuff to figure out like how long ago they diverged evolutionary. There's, there's all kinds of cool um, stuff you can do. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, 
to their surprise, they found out that after the DNA testing, they were not closely related. They okay. were identical. Oh. What? Yeah. The microalgae that created the spores seem to have come from Austria. That's and you may bizarre. have noticed that India and Austria are not close together on a map. No, <laughs> no they're not. Not in slightest. At all. Right? So there have been reports, and this is maybe a little bit what, Victoria, you were maybe thinking of. There have been reports in the past of intercontinental aerial transport of bacteria and fungus. But this was the first ever evidence of aerial intercontinental transport of algal spores. So yeah. there is now uh, great interest in doing all kinds of like high uh, altitude air sampling to see, you know, what sort of paths these are taking. Um, what else can we detect up at these high altitudes? Um, like what what is um, floating around the world, and how are these things being transported? So it's yeah. really fascinating. Obviously, we have more questions uh, than answers, and uh, I think that's that's a great sign of like great science is when we end up yeah. with. More questions like, than you than answer than one. Got answered. Get about ten more know how questions. Many, I want to know how many spiders they find up there. <laughs> yeah, right. That that would be interesting too. Now, uh, lucky for us, you know, people don't go run around panic th- uh, in a panic, thinking that it's the end of the world when our rain or snow is a little red. Uh, but if you ever do see this phenomenon, consider yourself very lucky uh, to be witnessing how you know strange and wonderful our planet is. That was very cool. Thank you, Kirk. So cool. No problem. Uh, we are going to take a break, and when we come back, it will be Rachel's turn. <laughs> Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at... Patreon.com slash Strange by Nature. See you soon. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Um, I wanted to talk about something, obviously something strange, but something that we... Well, you just talked about blood rain, so this is about par with blood rain. (laughs) Um, So... The floodgates have been opened, so... Mwaha. Um, Wait, did you say this wasn't far from blood rain? I mean, no, it is far from blood rain. It's very different, but it's like, uh, you'll see. It's it's just a a specific instance of something. Um, So have either of you been to Crater Lake? No, no, I haven't, but I would I would love to go sometime. I would love to go as well. So Crater Lake, uh, just in general, a little background on that one, is a lake that used to be a caldera over in uh, South Central Oregon in the western of the United States uh, as part of, you know, a national park, Crater Lake National Park. Um, and it... Hartley fills uh, a 2,148 foot deep or feet deep 
Caldera. Well, oh, wow. That's very deep. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, that's deeper than I uh, was expecting. Yeah, so that's the Caldera. So it doesn't completely fill that. Um, oh, oh, that's the depth oh. of the Caldera. That's, that's not the, the depth, depth of, the of the Caldera, not the, oh, okay, the okay, lake okay. itself. Okay, that makes, right. that makes okay. way more sense. Okay. Um, the lake itself was formed about 7,700 years ago. Um, so like post-glaciation? Yeah, post-glaciation. Yes. Um, but what, what, it, what he said. <laughs> what he said. Um, the max uh, depth of the water itself, though, uh, so is still pretty significant. The average depth is 1,148 feet deep. Oh, wow. That's still deep. Okay, yeah. That's still I very deep. Maybe 700 or something. That's nope. Uh, the maximum depth of Crater Lake is 1,949 feet. So mm. it's still okay. a very that's deep. That's deep. deep. It's a very deep lake. But besides it being a very deep and just kind of mysterious lake as it is, there's something weird that's in the lake. <laughs> okay. Okay. And they call it okay. they call it the old man of the lake. Uh, <laughs> all right. Okay. All right. Let's it, do this. Keep talking. It is a it is a 30 foot tall tree stump that has been bobbing vertically since at least 1896. It's floating <laughs> free in the water with about four feet of it being above the water and uh, the rest of that 30 feet underneath. So 26 feet below the water. Vertically. Vertically. Okay. It bobs vertically. Must be heavy, heavy roots. It's... Yeah. Um, so it's it's about two feet in diameter, too. So it, it's a very large okay. uh, stump and it floats. And do we know the species? They think it's a hemlock, but they don't okay. know for sure. I think okay. hemlock is a very uh, durable wood. Mm hmm. Evidently. <laughs> Evidently. Yeah. I, I, yeah let's apparently. go with that. Um, they've been able to carbon date the stump. Uh, this tree itself is at least 450 years old. Um, but, but, um, hold on. Yeah. Carbon dating doesn't work for things that young. Yeah, it's... So is it... Preliminary. Is, is this like, like some sort of like looking at the, the rings or something? There has to be another way to do that. No. Um, from what I've seen is they carbon dated the stump, which... I agree. It doesn't generally work very well, at least for the stump, but like, especially okay, for something. I've got, my, I've got my skepticals. My skepticals. That's on. let's just move on. Let's, that's we'll move fair. Um, but it's just this huge. Uh, it's been floating upright in the lake for more than a hundred years. Um, sure. It's it's really weird. And the other thing that's very bizarre about it, so it it's this big old stump, and it the surface obviously has been bleached because it's 
open to the elements and uh, this part of the stump that's above the water like has degraded a bit. Um, but it, it's still wide and buoyant enough that it can support a person's weight. Um, <laughs> fun. Which is just fun. Who else w wants to sit on this giant stump? Um, what's really bizarre about this particular stump too, besides the fact that it floats vertically throughout the lake and just goes wherever it, it doesn't seem to be, um, going horizontal anytime soon. Uh, there is a moss that's present, um, that is growing on this stump and, um, it's normally this moss is only present in the depths at a lake of at least 398 feet. Um, huh. So you're saying uh, the part above the surface has this moss that normally grows only like 400 feet Fair down. Enough. It's still uh, underneath the water. It's underneath the surface okay. where the moss is growing on old, old man of the lake, but it is, Usually, found, usually found almost 400 feet down. Uh, and they're not really sure how or why this moss is attached to uh, this stump. It's not found anywhere else besides at depth. All right. So yeah. this stump, this stump seems like not quite the wrong word. I would say log. Can we call it a log? log. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Log is log. Yep. Uh, sorry, so old, really old Ren and Stimpy reference. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, okay. If anyone caught that is listening, I'll be so happy. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, what I was going to say <laughs> is, so you were saying there's some tentative, some kind of dating that the tree is at least 450 years old. Mm -hmm. I did look it's that been... up, by the way, just to clarify. Yeah. The I was wrong. Carbon dating, uh, the... Something it has to be older than 100 years and can't be older than 50,000 years. That's okay. the age range carbon dating works. Ah. So if it is 400 some years old, carbon dating, yes, would actually work. Okay. okay. Absolutely work. All right. So it's like 450 years old, at least. Mm -hmm. And it's been floating. The log has been floating in the lake for over 100 years. Yeah. Now, when did, when did Crater Lake become a lake? Uh, about 7,000 7, years, years ago, ago or so. So how did, how did this log get in the lake? We don't know. <laughs> we have no idea. And isn't that weird? So yeah, are, are, there, are there trees of this species around the lake currently? Um, or were there historically? Like I think there were historically. Um, but generally speaking, like we're not sure why it's it's there. Um yeah, I, I couldn't really, I really, <laughs> honestly, I couldn't find, there are uh, types of, there are hemlocks of, again, we're not 100% sure what species of tree this was. Right. We think it's hemlock. It's most likely hemlock. Um, and there are some species of those types, that kind of tree found at Crater Lake and around Crater Lake, but not necessarily near enough that it would be a stump or uh, this log floating vertically in the water. But maybe but 450 maybe. years ago, they were growing there and one just 
blew in. Maybe. I guess that's yeah. probably the most plausible explanation. And when in or, doubt, you know, you know? Aliens. Yeah. Aliens. It, definitely aliens. aliens. Yeah. 100%. Um, I'm not saying aliens, but, you know. <laughs> Actually, like, it was Bigfoot. Aliens. There it is. It is Oregon. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's some sort of Bigfoot, like, ride or something, a primitive sort mm -hmm. of uh, amusement mm -hmm. park ride. Like, maybe he was trying to build one of those flumes, the log flumes. I mean, maybe. And just got lazy and gave up. I mean, people have been doing lots of studies on Old Man of the Lake. Uh, there was a park naturalist in 1938 that spent three months tracking its travel patterns. Um, I thought you were going to say he spent three months living on it. That would be amazing. <laughs> um, no, apparently, like, uh, between July 1st and September 30th in 1938, uh, that vlog went around 62 miles and on a particularly windy day actually traveled 3.8 miles uh, in the lake. So it gets around. It, it moves it quite a bit. It some miles. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, oftentimes when you're in the, uh, when you're, when you go eventually and visit Crater Lake, it is uh, often seen on the boat tours and things like that. So odds are you'll be able to see it. Um, the most famous log I will have ever seen. Yeah. The most famous, truly. Um, just the fact that it's floating uh, vertically throughout these waves for over a hundred years is just, it just is amazing. Um, especially since being blown by the wind is not being rocked by any of the waves or anything. It's just mm -hmm. blown by wind. Um, yeah, that is what I have for you this week. Weird. Absolutely weird. bizarre. <laughs> uh, we're going to take a quick break and when we return, it'll be Victoria. All right, we are back from the break. And today I want to talk about something that happened in California in uh, December 2016. Within the space of about two weeks, 14 people in five different counties in Northern California wound up in the hospital with a strange collection of symptoms. Oh, good. We're, uh, we're first... ending on this, huh? Okay, cool. Cool. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. This might have been a good Halloween episode, but I just couldn't yeah, wait. No. You know, it's funny. My, my Blood Rain one might have been the best one to pick. We really... Uh, I wanted... I did choose mine. This is Halloween Plus. We're all in the Halloween spirit. Yes. Had so much, uh, you know, sugar, and we're just... Uh, I did kind of... Halloweened up. ...want to do... I thought about doing this one for Halloween because it's really spooky. Or doing yeah. Old Man of the Lake because it's spooky. But okay, back to the uh, 14 people in the hospital, Yes. Yeah. So they, they arrived at the hospital with what seemed like severe food poisoning. They had nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. However, they continued ah. to get worse uh, oh, and good. eventually started sh showing signs of liver failure. Oh, uh, dear. Yeah, yeah eventually really three of the people died. Of the 11 that survived, three required liver transplants. Oh. And uh, one who was an 18-month-old child was left with permanent brain damage. What? This sounds like mushrooms to me. Ding, 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 ding. What? Yay! What they have in common is that they had all recently eaten a meal of wild mushrooms 
Okay. These folks were poisoned by one of the most deadly fungi known to humankind, Amanita phalloides, the death cat mushroom. The what? Oh, no. Yes. That's not... You fed your 18... That is not the one. One, yes, but... I'm sorry. This these they were able to feed an 18-month-old child mushrooms. I'm yeah, more astonished well, by that, honestly. I mean, my my toddlers, well, one of my toddlers eats mushrooms, the other doesn't. But, well, your toddlers ahead of me. Okay. I don't I don't pick death caps, so <laughs> Well, yeah, I would hope not. <laughs> yeah, you know, these people know. didn't think they did either, Victoria. Uh, no, they didn't. Uh, the death cat mushroom is the mushroom that is responsible for the most deaths worldwide. It's the majority of mushroom poisonings, in fact. Mushroom poisoning deaths, I should say. And uh, they're okay. actually native to Eurasia, but they've been naturalized in the U.S. for quite a while. Uh, they were most likely brought in on the roots of imported trees because they're actually a mycorrhizal species. Mycorrhizal oh, wow. species. Yeah. So. That means they form a symbiotic relationship with the roots of plants, which is another totally cool topic that I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. We've we've touched on it a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so trees such as oak, chestnut, and pine. Uh, and it was apparently established on the East Coast by at least 1900, but it was a bit of a later traveler to the West Coast. The first one was spotted in 1938 in Monterey, California. And in the past few decades, it has become quite common in Northern California and uh, is kind of making its way up the coast, Oregon, Washington, uh, British Columbia. So part of the part of the problem with the death cap is not it's not dramatic looking. It's a pretty typical mushroom shape. It has a white stem and white gills, and the cap is usually kind of a greenish yellow color, but it can vary uh, from white to brown, and in some of the early stages of growth, the mushrooms are, as you might expect from the species name, a little bit male looking. That's Eloides. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But not Whatever like excessively. But it is also similar looking to some edible species, uh, including some popular Southeast Asian species. And so actually many of the poisoning incidents in yeah. North America have been among um, Hmong and Lao immigrants. Uh, who that's used what to, I've heard as well. Yeah, used to foraging for these types of mushrooms um, back in their, in their land of origin and uh, aren't aware of, of the death cap around here. So the toxin that they produce is called amatoxin. It's really quite nasty. Uh, Amatoxin is horrible. As little as half a cap, 30 grams of the mushroom, is enough to kill a person. Oh. Um, And the the fun really begins after the mushroom is swallowed. And the toxin is absorbed um, by the small intestine, which is where your nutrients are also absorbed. And it's taken directly to the liver, which... Is, is the way our body works to, to process toxins and, and other things. Um, but it's absorbed by the liver cells and it interferes with them making proteins that they need to do all the things that cells have to do. So it leads to cell death in the liver and eventual liver failure. And it can also affect some other organs oh. like the kidney. Uh, yeah. Poisonous mushrooms are, are kind of a strange thing. Yeah, you they're know, bizarre. Like the death cap. 
Yeah, so some of the most toxic species of mushrooms look really boring. And those who have eaten death caps also say that they are quite delicious. Oh, no. Yeah. Cool. At least you <laughs> enjoyed your last meal. So if you think about the toxic plants and animals that we know about, this seems very strange. Toxic animals tend to display warning coloration. So if you think of a poison dart frog or a monarch butterfly, mm-hmm. you know, the idea is that the bright colors and patterns make them memorable and any animal that tries to eat an, a, a poisonous animal will only make that mistake once, right? Right. They learn to right, recognize right. the pattern. And poisonous plants usually taste bitter and horrible. And again, it's it's because they want to... A lot of, of, of alkaloids are kind yeah, of Yeah, alkaloids. Like... Totally. Um, they want to avoid being eaten. That's why they produce those evolutionarily. The death cap is not doing any of that. And in fact, one of the reasons that it is so insidious is uh, it's often a can be a day or two before symptoms appear at all. And as we saw earlier, they first resemble just regular food poisoning. So the person may not even connect the symptoms with what they ate a few days ago. Right. You're Um, probably thinking it was what you ate 20 minutes ago. Yeah, exactly. And also the only animals that are affected by the death caps poison are some types of mammals and some, some types of mammals can eat it just fine. Like uh, some squirrels and rabbits apparently are not affected. So, you know, speaking evolutionarily, it seems pretty unlikely that the toxin would have developed as a way to prevent the mushroom from being eaten. Right. You would expect a bad taste, a quick da- quick acting poison, uh, maybe some morning coloration, something like that. Yeah, especially not so something most... where it would wait a few days. Like, that's that's weird. Exactly. So the most likely explanation is that the amatoxins are actually just used by the mushroom itself for its own needs. And it just so happens that it is really, really, really bad for us. Cool. Um, Yeah. The death rate for ingestion of death caps is uh, estimated to be 10 to 30%, even with modern medical treatment. Uh, And those who survive sometimes only do so because they need, because they get a liver transplant. Uh, but in some good news, there is a promising, relatively new treatment. It's called silibinin. I uh, hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's a compound from a plant called milk thistle. And it's oh, okay. been used with some success in Europe for a couple decades. And it's currently undergoing trials in the U.S. So it hmm. may be approved sometime soonish. We don't know. Um, but, hey, don't, uh, don't eat a wild mushroom unless you're absolutely sure what it is. Yelp. That is service a, announcement. That is a really that's so important. I actually went uh, foraging for the first time this past year, but I went with someone who knew what they were doing. Yeah, um, and it was just fun for me. But yeah, no, you want to know what you're taking very, very much. So that was my cheerful topic for this week. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Good job, Victoria. Death cap mushrooms. Yeah. Woohoo! Thank Wow. Thank yeah. you all for joining us. Uh, and we'll talk to you next week. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. 
You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.